Oh, today that you would hear his voice and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A reading from Psalm 19. These are God's words. For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of your hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their writing has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the ends of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. These are God's words. You can take your seats. In this psalm, David was led to worship God with one profound meditation. This is a meditation on the glorious perfections of God's words. David's meditation led him to consider two categories or ways that God speaks to us. First, from verses 1 through 6, he meditates on God's words that are being poured out from day to day from the heavens. These words are declaring something through his created works. The invisible God is speaking through the visible things of his creation. The human perception of these powerful words is sometimes called natural revelation. The revelation that is heard through human eyes. The things that we see all around us are being sustained by his speech, and they in turn are telling of his glory. It is impossible to not see this proclamation in his work. The revelation of God, because it is everywhere, cannot escape your perception. It floods the eyes. The second category of God's words that David meditates on from verses 7 through 13 is God's law, the Torah. When we, as New Covenant Christians, sing the psalm, in our minds we should also include, by implication, the whole Bible, all of God's special revelation. David heard God's special revelation by reading his words on a scroll, and in our case, we hear his voice by reading his words on the pages that have been bound together in our Bibles. 
and also on the screens of our phones. Lastly, in verse 14, David was driven to respond to these reflections, showing that it was his desire to imitate the perfections of God's words with his own words, with the words that came from his mouth. So in the psalm, the direction of David's worship is toward the source of all revelation, both natural and special. The perfect God that can do nothing but speak with perfection. He speaks perfectly in both his creation and in his word. Now let's look at how David describes God's speech that is seen in the heavens. He says in verse 1, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The vast and seemingly infinite night sky, full of beautiful stars and celestial activity, has always been the object of wonder for mankind. It has inspired much poetry and never ceases to make man feel small. This is because it proclaims the glory of God. And we, as we look up with our ant-like, tiny, man-sized glory, this speech that is large and ominous, bearing down upon us, it forces our minds to compare ourselves with God. Our glory is nothing. And that becomes obvious when we are met face to face with the starry proclamation of God's glory. This proclamation of the skies is clear and profound. What is it saying? God's glory is immense, unfathomable. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. Only a fool would ignore it and not love it. Next, David highlights the constancy of this speech. Verse 2. Day to day pours for speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This is a relentless cycle of speech, God proclaiming his glory from day to day and night to night. Then David highlights the nature of God's voice in verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. There are differing interpretations on this verse, but the way I've taken it, and this is, I got this view from Calvin's commentary, is that though God's voice is universally perceived, there is a sense in which it is not heard. He speaks with an inaudible voice. The meaning of his proclamation is clear, though his speech is given without words. This interpretation is obviously true to reality. He is not speaking through the heavens as a man would speak with another man. Like I said earlier, it is speech that is perceived and interpreted through the eyes. It is as though God were thundering a mighty sermon in the silent sky. Then David, speaking as though the sermon were written, uh, speaks as though the sermon was written on a canvas that stretches across the whole globe. Verse 4 says, Their writing has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the ends of the world. Again, this highlights the inescapable nature of God's speech. Wherever you are on the globe, because his glory is proclaimed in the sky, you will be preached to. No one's avoiding this sermon written in the sky. And then David highlights that this message, in a sense, does a journey across the sky, and it does it daily. In the same way that the sun goes up and travels across the sky each day, so this message is preached from day to day, over and over. David gives us this vivid picture, starting halfway through verse 5. In them, 
He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man runs his course. It rises from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, it's a little difficult to understand the Hebrew here, and I found in my preparation there are a bunch of varying interpretations of this. So where it says, in them, he has placed a tent for the sun, what is the in them? Is the in them referring to the words of the sermon? Is it, or is it the sky? And how does this thing relate to the sun? It seems a bit awkward, at least the way it comes across in our English. I believe using the preceding verses, uh, we should take the in them to mean the ends of the earth, that is, in the ends of the earth with regard to the sun's journey. As we perceive the sun's journey, it seems to start and finish on the opposite horizons. This isn't a scientific way of speaking about the sun, but it's the way that we perceive it. As we watch the sun come up from one side and then go down on the other, it is as though it is coming up from its place of rest, a tent. And then it goes down to the other tent on the other side. So at the ends of the earth, he has placed a tent for the sun. And now David requires us to imagine the sun carrying this proclamation of God across the sky because the way the sun makes its journey tells us something about God's speech, how his message is proclaimed to the whole earth. Obviously, the sun is part of the heavens, so that is also proclaiming the glory of God as it goes across the sky. David tells us that the sun comes out of his tent or his chamber as a bridegroom does. Like a strong man, it enjoys running its course across the sky from one horizon to the other. I've used this passage to give wedding day advice to nervous bridegrooms a number of times. I think the image we are given here is meant to convey the eagerness and overarching joy of the sun who wakes up ready to proclaim God's glory across the skies. He wakes up with the same confidence and strength of a virile young man who wakes up for his wedding day. He wakes up swinging that tent flap open with a smile and starts to run knowing that this day he will have his prized woman. This joyful experience of a bridegroom is a one-off for this young man. So it is charged with an incomparable excitement. But the sun does this every day, and it never wanes in eagerness. It leaves its tent every day in the same way, like a bridegroom does out to get his bride. Obviously, this is talking about an ideal bridegroom, a potent man full of testosterone. This image does not work if we're talking about a timid uncertain bridegroom. That kind of bridegroom is weak and in danger of looking unattractive. His lack of visible zeal unintentionally dishonors his bride. Is he not excited to have her? Is he even a man? A bridegroom that is constantly staring at his feet is like the sun waking up with nothing to say about the glories of God. So if you have the opportunity, tell a timid bridegroom to love his wife-to-be and man up like the sun, to keep his eyes on the prize and to run his course with joy. Because how you go about your duties speaks. The sun speaks. Its constancy speaks. Its speed and brightness speaks. Pushing this application way out into the corners, 
I think it would be worthwhile for us to consider how our inaudible actions speak also. This principle is behind much of what David is saying here. Since the way we go about a thing speaks, it matters in all of our endeavors, not only on our marriage day, how we run our course. We want to seize every day for Jesus Christ, not as a discontented, slouchy, low-energy grump, but with joy, and we could say a masculine vigor. We as Christians must enjoy life. We must enjoy the things God gave us and be happy with the things that he withholds from us and build up in ourselves godly contentment. We hope for better days and we seek out better days for ourselves and for those around us. But manifesting this kind of optimism and contentment requires a certain kind of inner strength. We must be like the son who is like the strong man running his course with joy. That joy will speak to the world and glorify the God who is our strength. So to sum up this first section, David tells us that God proclaims his glory in the heavens, and this inaudible speech is constant, persistent, perceptible, clear, and irrefusible. And this message is delivered with joy and confidence across the sky from day to day. Now the psalm makes a transition here. And it is a very jarring transition. To the imperceptible, it might even seem like David is making a wild change of subject. Verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. What are we supposed to think about the swing that David makes from the heavens to the Torah? I believe that it is a very intentional swing. Every word of every psalm was written with intentionality. So the seemingly abrupt transition must not be void of meaning. The overarching subject of the psalm is clearly God's speech. Since God does not change, that is, he is constantly perfect, we should expect the character of his speech to be the same in all its forms. His speech is always perfect. I think the lack of transition here highlights the sameness of God's speech. Whether it is speech in the heavens or speech on the page, they are the same in their perfections. So what seems like a jarring transition, in one sense, is no transition at all. We have gone from the perfections of God's speech to the perfections of God's speech. In the same way that we can see the glory of God proclaimed in the starry sky, full of wonder and profound beauty, the scriptures proclaims the glory of God with its perfections. Which church believes in the perfections of Scripture today? I do not mean just say with their mouth that Scripture is perfect, but which churches act as though the Word of God is perfect? Look at the way many pastors peddle the Word and prefer to tell stories than teach what is there in the text. And look at the way that progressives ignore it altogether and instead follow the whims of culture? Do their actions show that they know the glory of God's perfect speech? No, they don't. They are trying to perfect God's word with their human alterations. How dare they? May God end the wild arrogance of these so-called ministers of the word. Let's try to forget them now and instead think for a moment about what God has given us 
given us access to today through our Bibles. The invisible God who is present here now, who spoke the stars into place, who spoke this wonderful world into being, filling it with tremendous detail and wise design. That God, he is speaking to you with that same voice through the Bible that sits beside your cereal bowl in the morning. The God who spoke the stars into place, he is speaking in this very place today through the psalm. We must believe this. This is profound and weighty truth. This has been a fruitful meditation for me over the years. If God placed so much care into creation, would he not do the same with his book? Of course he would. We should have full confidence in the Bible because God's speech is perfect. This is what David is highlighting here. Unlike the progressive pastors of our day, David knew how wonderful God's revelation was. And with a joy similar to that of a bridegroom, similar to that of the son, he chose to proclaim the glories of God's words. He continues to do that in verse 8, quoting from it now. The precepts of Yahweh rejoice the heart. The commandments of Yahweh is pure. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. To the truly converted man, what once was a minister of death, proclaiming to him the standards by which he was condemned, that same law becomes life itself. God's laws are enlightening to him. They are sweet to his taste. They restore his soul. They are the standard by which he is happily being sanctified. Many Christians today do not understand how the law should make this transition upon their conversion. It is, it is though not being under the law means that we should now hate the law forever. But it used to be something that we hated because, Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it, it is not even able to do so. That was while we were in the flesh. Then we did not subject ourselves to the law. But after that, being born again of his spirit to new life and being given new affections, affections that are in line with the will of God expressed in his commandments, we then love to keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5.3 David was a truly converted man. And therefore, he loved the speech of God in all its forms. He loved the law, not as a means to gaining his own righteousness, but because God's words were a beautiful, holy, and perfect standard that anyone, converted or non-converted, should want to live by. Upon conversion, David happily became a slave to righteousness. This is how Paul describes this transition in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, 
You are a slave of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. David uses the same slave terminology to speak of himself in the next few verses of the psalm, beginning at verse 11. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. David was glad to be a slave of righteousness, because, as he says here, in obedience there is great reward. His life would improve through obedience. David was saying nothing more than what the law itself said. This is Deuteronomy 6.3. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to obey all my law, that it may be well with you, and, you, and that you may multiply greatly. Just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. David was not ignorant of this. The law was his basis for believing that through keeping the law, there would be great reward. But David was also not ignorant of his own sin. He also understood that no man could fully understand the true extent of their sinfulness. Even those being sanctified will sin. He knew he had hidden faults, sins that he was not aware of. So he acknowledges them here. He also knew that he needed the grace of God to keep from committing even presumptuous sins, sins that are done on purpose and that presume on the future grace of God to cover them. So we ask God here to keep him from committing these presumptuous sins. He asked God that he would keep them, these presumptuous sins, from ruling over him. David says that if God does this, he would be acquitted of great transgression. Presumptive sins are greater than regular transgressions. Some sins are greater by degree. Presumptive sins are greater because they are before the face of God with full knowledge of guilt. May God keep us here at Redwood from the great transgressions of presumptive sins. After this extended meditation on the speech of God, David finishes with what I'm sure is a very familiar verse to most of us here. It is a common Sunday school memory verse and is often quoted in isolation, which is fine in this case. It is a good verse to quote in isolation because it makes sense by itself. But the full depth of the meaning of this verse cannot be attained without reading it in its context. It says, this is verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. This is a great final petition, a quick and fitting prayer for every situation we find ourselves in. But let's consider how this petition functions in the psalm as a whole. After meditating on the perfect words of God, acknowledging their beauty and wonder, I believe David is driven here to imitation. 
The subject of the psalm was God's words, but now he is driven to consider his own words. He is saying here, let my words be perfect like yours, God. Let the speech of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be as acceptable as yours are. Let my speech be conformed to your perfect speech and my thoughts be conformed to your perfect thoughts because the only truly acceptable speech is that which is perfect. And thanks be to God, this is what we are being conformed into today. We are being conformed into the perfect. We are being driven by the Holy Spirit into imitating the perfect. We are being conformed into the image of the perfect one, Jesus Christ, by seeing him in his word. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. Our minds are being renewed right now into the image of Christ as we look upon his glory being manifest in his words. We know this from 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And if we had time, it would be great to look at the rest of that passage, how the Old Testament Christians were veiled. They didn't see goodness in them. Like they didn't, couldn't obey it. They didn't see goodness in it. They didn't see the glory of God. But now we are unveiled. So we see him revealed to us in his word now and are steadily being conformed into that same image. And in a similar way, we see him, uh, when we see him at his appearing, we will be fully conformed into his image. We know this from 1 John 3, 2, which says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Amazing. So let's sing Psalm 19 now to the tune of I Worship the King, with a joy that is fitting for these words of God. They are truly more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. <laughs> 